So this is, <clears throat> excuse me, this is the, uh, the last day of the church here, uh, which means, <clears throat> excuse me, it's the dry, cold air I am not used to, um, which means next week, uh, Happy New Year, I guess. And typically, uh, or other Christians in kind of other similar denominations will also call today Christ the King Sunday. And as I was kicking that around and, and some of the readings, and we're going to actually focus on the book of Colossians, that reading today, uh, the, the, the question came to my mind, why are you here? Not in a confrontational, like, oh, you're doing it wrong sort of way, but why do we, why do we come here? Now, that answer could be very different for, uh, depending on, on who you ask. Uh, sometimes coming to church is treated like a, like a social club, like this is where I go to get seen. Uh, sometimes it's like a self-help club, like I come and get some good advice. There's maybe a little truth to that. I mean, Paul does say some really helpful things like be quick to listen and slow to speak. That's really good advice. Um, I'm not going to say exactly when or, or under what circumstances, but I really should have heeded that advice at some point this week. Um, I mean, okay, yeah, and that's not a bad idea, but why are we really here? Uh, the answer, of course, is kind of that standard sort of unimaginative answer of, well, we're here because of Jesus. But who is Jesus? Who was Jesus? What, is it, what, what, what do we mean when we say we want to orient everything we do as a church around Jesus? Because that's one of those answers that can, can get repeated enough that it starts to lose its meaning. Like if you ever repeat a word over and over again, um, the, the connection between that word and the concept of that word actually gets like severed for a moment in your brain. It's kind of like that. So if we could have uh, the Colossians reading up uh, on the screen. And then, yeah, let's see here. All right, that bottom line there. He is the image of the invisible God. So this is all about bearing God's image. That's what Paul is alluding to. And when Paul makes a little reference or a hint like that, because of the way Paul works, he means like the much bigger context of what he is quoting. Now, we use that phrase, like the image of God, enough. We'll say that human beings are, are made in God's image, which is pulled directly from Genesis chapter 1, the first narrative of creation. But what does that mean? Because we, we intuitively know that if we identify somebody as made in God's image, it gives them a certain sense of dignity or a certain amount of worth. Like there are certain ways that you will treat somebody differently when you consciously think that person is made in God's image. Whether that be somebody immensely powerful and wonderful or somebody who is on the corner uh, begging for cash. If you, if you stop and think, okay, 
that person's life is just a mess and filled with immense suffering, but they are made in God's image, we intuitively know that there's a sense of dignity there, or at least there should be. But what does it mean? What is it actually referring to? Uh, philosophers and theologians over the many centuries of Christian history have, have pondered this. And so from that, you know, basically many centuries of monks having way too much time on their hands, they, will, they started to develop certain explanations. Well, being made in God's image means that they have a soul. It's not really exactly how the Bible describes people. Or it may, uh, they may say that it means that they can think rationally. And that, I, I, I mean, but that's not really a biblical category, like at all. And I think there's a, a danger, there's a danger there. Like, my cats know that if one of us runs into the kitchen roughly in the morning and roughly in the evening, that very likely they could score some food out of this. And believe me, there is not the dignity of image-bearing human beings in these little creatures. Um, there's this little bit of rationality. And actually, I saw an article, uh, researchers were looking at wild chimpanzees, and, and one of them actually went, had like a leaf in his hand and showed the other one just for the sake of showing them. There, there's a rationality there. And to say that, well, being made in God's image means that we are rational creatures just puts us on like a spectrum where we are on the one end and, I don't know, like multicellular organisms are on the other. And I'm not extremely comfortable with that because intuitively we know that to bear God's image sets us apart. So as it turns out, this idea of an image, an image of God or image of a God is found all over the world of the Hebrew Scriptures. It doesn't actually get mentioned in the, the Hebrew Bible all that much, but it gets mentioned a lot within the other cultures. Some of these writings have only become available to us in the last hundred years, maybe a little more. It's actually kind of exciting. And as it turns out, and this fits exactly what the biblical authors are doing, doing, to bear God's image means to be God's representative. And that makes perfect sense. Like, if, if you have an image of somebody made, that image represents them. It shows you what they look like, shows you what they act like, kind of shows you who they are. Think of the, that painting of George Washington crossing the Delaware River where he's, you know, standing with his knee up and looking all stern and heroic. That's an image of Washington, and it tells you a lot about him, doesn't it? So God made these creatures in his image, these human beings, and placed them in this sacred space that he called creation. 
And everybody knew back then that an image of a god belongs in a temple, a place of sacred space. That's what it means to bear God's image. You are God's representative. You are like his ambassador to creation. You, you are intended to show creation what God is like and to rule over creation with his grace and wisdom. There is, however, the problem. So in the sacred space that the biblical author calls the Garden of Delight, or Eden, uh, there's this tree called the Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil. And I think I've said this before, but it's one of those drums that's worth beating a lot. Uh, what is the knowledge of good and evil? It's wisdom. The knowledge of good and evil is a good thing. As I raise my son, I want him to have the knowledge of good and evil so that when he is presented with a choice, he will not choose evil. But if you carefully read the, 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 the story, it's not like the woman got tricked and grabbed the fruit because God hates apples for some reason and ate it or whatever. No, 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 no. The language says she looked at it. She saw that it was good to make one wise, and she seized it for herself. In other words, she took wisdom for herself. And then, of course, the man did the same thing. Everybody's culpable here. The great fall is because these image bearers, those who were placed on earth to represent God, defined wisdom for themselves apart from God. That is a problem. How much human misery, how much of my own misery, to be perfectly honest, is a result of me or somebody else defining wisdom for themselves? Like, most of it? <laughs> Maybe close to all of it? And then when God looks and, reala and realizes what happens, and there's also in this sacred space, this tree of life, the last thing you want is somebody like that living forever, and so they are removed from sacred space. And the rest of the Bible is asking this question, how does sacred space return to God's creation? Where is God's presence? So that becomes the tabernacle. That becomes Mount Sinai when God gives Torah to Moses. It becomes the temple built by Solomon. And then that temple is destroyed, and then the question just lingers. And then in the book of John... One of the stories of Jesus' life, he begins, In the beginning, sounds familiar, was the Word. Spoiler alert, that Word is Jesus. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Sacred spaces returned. So Jesus, as this this image bearer, when he hits the scene, is like the actual image. Like if you want to know what God looks like and God acts like, 
You look at Jesus. A uh, very uh, famous Anglican bishop uh, used to enjoy, back when he was a bishop, he he isn't any longer, uh, when he would travel around and speak at like youth groups and stuff, he would uh, like to begin by leading them on with this question. And he'd say something like, what would it look like if God were really in charge here? And then he, he noticed that usually, like, you know, there's always that kid in, in the group. Um, one kid would, would uh, mal- or speak up and say, well, we'd probably have better coffee. Fair enough. But boy, that's a good question. What would it actually look like if God were in charge? I mean, first off, if God were in charge, the Astros would not have won the World Series. (laughs) I killed you. (laughs) I'm kidding. I don't care (laughs) about any of that. Um, But what would it look like? I mean, as Christians, we kind of agree that cosmically God is in charge somehow, right? But we also have loads of reminders that God is not in charge fully, that his will is not being seen through in every aspect of our life and human existence. I mean, I mentioned a moment ago, and especially in Albuquerque, you see loads of people who are struggling deeply, whose lives are a wreck through circumstance and choice and a complicated combination of both. I think we can all agree that if God were ultimately fully in charge, um, they would be leading probably different lives. Um, Relationships can honestly be kind of a mess. And I think we can agree that that is probably evidence that God is not fully in charge. He's not fully king of our marriages, or our friendships, our families. We have all of these reminders that something has gone wrong. And yet, as I said, when Jesus hits the scene, he answers the two questions, at least. The first is, how is God's presence going to return to his creation? And secondly, what does it look like for God to be king? Now, when we think of God's um, divinity, or Jesus' divinity, the fact that Jesus is divine, he's God in the flesh, divinity walking around in sandals and getting dirty and that kind of thing, uh, we, especially in Western Christianity, will tend to think um, of God in more divine terms than human terms. Like if, like the, the imagine the scenario of, of Jesus' mom telling Jesus to go clean up his room, and at least somebody would say, well, Jesus would just snap his fingers and everything would be put back as though he were a wizard. And I think that misses the point. Because what do we see? When Jesus actually walks around bringing God's presence wherever he goes. So Luke, one of the other 
authors of, of G, or writers about Jesus is very careful to point out that every time or that there that every that Jesus interacts with excuse me and touches somebody in all the categories that would have made him unclean I realize that's kind of confusing it's I'm going to blame the coldness outside um, there were several different ways that you could become unclean in ancient Judaism and modern Jesus does every single one of them in the book of Luke. Luke is very careful to point that out. Why? Jesus gets his hands dirty. He walks around with his people. He forms deep relationships with the people he encounters. He grieves, he weeps over the death of at least one of them. Jesus gets hungry. He spends time with people. It's not that, that Jesus uh, comes down to earth and then like hovers six inches over the ground and he's just like being God all over the place or something like that, but he actually gets his hands dirty. It's dusty. He, he, he likes to party. He hangs out with his friends. One of them betrays him. That's the stuff of life. That's the stuff of, of flesh and dust. So what, is it, what does it look like when God's actually in charge here? It looks like engagement. It looks like the human experience. It looks like suddenly people who can't see can see. The people who are desperate in desperate, uh, desperate need of healing are made well. That suddenly the grace of God is open to everybody. That's, that's somebody worth structuring our entire calendar around. But it doesn't stop there. Um, if we could go to the next, probably the, the chunk of verses after this one. There we go. Um, one more. And one more. <laughs> there we go. And so God sends his son, which is in a really hard way to describe, like, it is God. Um, and he gets, he gets his hands dirty. He engages. He has his heart broken. And eventually, he makes peace by the blood of his cross. Now, uh, historian and author Tom Holland, who is not a Christian, but has a lot of respect for Christianity uh, historically, points out 
that crucifixion under the Romans um, was pure horror. It represents in a lot of ways the worst that human beings have to offer. Uh, it, it is, it is the, the ultimate act of cruelty, specifically engineered and designed to take as long as possible. It's humiliation, it's brutality, it's every dark part of our hearts focused in on an act. The one who bears God's image, who truly represents God, goes so far as to engage the horror of crucifixion. And as it turns out, this is not just like an act. It's not just a thing that he has to do, but it takes on a much greater significance when you realize that this image bearer, the one truly human person, takes on all of the darkness and horror that human beings have to offer, all of our brokenness and all of our sin and all of our shame, all focuses into this singular moment. And then, as the Apostle Paul says a few verses earlier, Jesus not only takes on death, but he is the firstborn of all creation. For the first time, death no longer has the last word. That this true image bearer, this representative of God, who is God, defeated death and now drags us into this family, gives us a new identity, makes us a new human being, sparks a movement that is a new way to be human that has endured all kinds of horrors and come up with and taken part in some of the best that humanity has to offer that he calls the church. That's why we are here. That's why we orient everything around this person, Jesus. Amen. I invite you to rise as you are able.